Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Started here. Uh, I'm Walter Lohman, director of the Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Welcome, welcome back. Um, it's a really important issue that we're here to discuss today. That is the situation that uh, the Uyghur minority face in Western China today. Uh, what we hope to do is to um, understand it a little bit, put a spotlight on it, um, and discuss some solutions. Uh, to the problem, because that's what we do at the Heritage Foundation. We don't just study the issues. We look for things that we can suggest the government do, not just the executive branch, but the Congress as well, things they can do to address, uh, in our case, foreign policy issues, uh, Asia policy uh, in particular. We look for conservative solutions, and make no mistake, um, all Americans, including conservatives, ought to be concerned about what's going on in Western China. Not only because the situation that these people are facing because they're a minority, that would be a problem in and of itself in our eyes, but particularly because they face persecution because of their faith. While I may not share their faith uh, personally, and many others here may not either, um, on matters of religious freedom, it's important that we all hang together as a matter of principle. Because as Ben Franklin said, if we don't hang together, we will all certainly hang separately. Um, our keynote speaker, Ambassador Brownback, is going to join us a little bit later, a little bit different way to proceed here. Um, so accommodating his schedule, he's going to be here about 11.30 or so, and then uh, we'll, we'll introduce him and hear his remarks. So we're going to first start with our, our panel discussion. We're going to start with Nuri Turkle. Nuri is an old friend of mine and of Heritage. He's always been available to me to help me better understand, uh, better understand these issues. Uh, he's a U.S.-based Uyghur activist and attorney. He was actually born in a re-education camp uh, in Xinjiang. He's former president of the Uyghur American Association, as well as former executive director of the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Adrian Zenz is an independent lecturer. His research focuses on China ethnic policy and public recruitment in Tibet and Xinjiang. He's author of Tibetanists Under Threat and co-editor of Mapping Amdo, a series, uh, part of the series that Amdo Tibetan Research Network has facilitated. And then Olivia Enos. Uh, Olivia used to be a rising star at Heritage, but now she really is a star. Uh, as, a, as a policy analyst here, she is bringing issues of human rights and, and transnational crime to the forefront of our, our project in the Asian Studies Center. And she's been here since 2013, which we were just discussing earlier today is a lot longer than I thought. Um, 
and she really is tireless uh, on behalf of these, these issues. Um, and in fact, just got off of a plane from uh, Taiwan and, and Korea uh, to prove that point. It's a pleasure to work with Olivia every day. Um, I have to say that because I'm probably gonna be working for her someday. Um, so I'm just kind of planning ahead here. Uh, okay, with that, uh, I'm gonna turn it over to Nuri. He'll get us started. We'll just go one through and then we'll have some discussion, uh, Q&A, so be thinking about questions as we go through. And uh, as soon as Ambassador Brownback gets here, we'll introduce him and we'll, we'll also hear from, hear from him. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me back to the Heritage Foundation. Um, this is the second event that Walter and Olivia have organized uh, on the issue of the Uyghur crisis. Uh, in the meantime, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank uh, scholars like Adrian Zen, who are largely responsible for putting the issue on the map uh, with the evidence-based research and documentation. Uh, without scholars like Adrian, we would not know uh, initially what the Chinese government was doing uh, and or trying to accomplish. Um, the narrative is very clear. Uh, it's been a year since we uh, started to know firsthand information about the camps, uh, the reason for the construction of the camps, and the, the expansion process uh, and Chinese government's ultimate goal. Um, as we speak, uh, more than two million uh, Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims have been in turn, what the experts and now the U.S. government officials have been calling as concentration camps. These camps aim to put Uyghurs through conversion therapy that I believe is um, re human reengineering and programming of a, a proud uh, heritage, uh, ethnic identity that has been in existence uh, as, as, um, as early as 12th, 13th century. And the, the government, uh, the Chinese authorities, have been trying to change the headline uh, by calling it um, re-education centers, uh, vocational schools, and recently the chairman of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Regional Government stated that it is a boarding school. But when you look at the purposes of those um, uh, camps, uh, the current party secretary uh, said these camps were designed to teach like a school, be managed like the military, and defended like a prison, with a specific purpose to break the Uyghur lineage, break their roots, break their connections, and break their origins. And the Chinese government also, uh, in addition to taking the Uyghur individuals into the camps, they have also taken the children to a state-run orphanage. Uh, recently, uh, Radio Free Asia reported at least two uh, Turkey-based uh, individuals recognize their missing children in Chinese government propaganda video about the state-run orphanage. The Uyghur cities, towns, and villages are covered with surveillance cameras. The Uyghur people have been subject to mandatory DNA collection, iris scans, and required to download mandatory monitoring apps onto their phones. As a result, uh, the Uyghur families, relatives, including my own, deleted uh, our contact information from their phones. Uh, many Uyghurs around the world, uh, including myself, have been cut out from their family members. Uh, the Uyghurs uh, living in Europe here and Australia and other countries today worry that if something happens to their family members, they will not be able to know because there's no connection to the 
family members. The basic human rights, such as to maintain um, co uh, context through phone calls, uh, exchanging photographs, uh, video chatting, have been taken away from uh, the Uyghur uh, diaspora, Uyghur uh, individuals living in free societies. Um, and also there's a, something chilling going on. Uh, there are some Chinese scholars, um, uh, including Julianhe Marong, uh, have been writing about a so-called final solution to the Xinjiang problem. Uh, what they have been uh, saying recently that or, uh, their actions and their policy indicates that they think that they have find a final solution to the so-called Uyghur problem. The seriousness of the Uyghur tragic, tragedies uh, cries out for world condemnation, uh, societal support, and actions by governments individually or collectively. So uh, as I pointed out, the narrative is very clear, um, uh, supported by evidence, supported by uh, personal accounts, uh, provided by survivors or ma family members been affected by these atrocities. So what do we do about it? Uh, first of all, um, we need to acknowledge and recognize that what is happening in, in China and China's government's attempt to exploit those methods a threat to a democratic system, the rule of law, and free expression. If you don't address this, if you don't recognize this, it's going to be very difficult to come together to rectify the situation. And the way that we handle this, recognize this, eventually find a solution, defines what kind of world that we, will, we, we want, uh, we want to live. Uh, so since the crisis has been started, uh, or come to uh, world attention, um, the only the United States government uh, in various levels, uh, particularly the Congress, have spoken out. The other countries um, who have history uh, been told their children through education materials never again have to take up a position. We've been looking for leadership uh, in Europe uh, take a similar position that the U.S. government has taken. Uh, various levels of U.S. government officials, including uh, Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Pompeo, um, Ambassador Brombeck, uh, who has been a um, uh, who has been spearheading much of the effort in the administration, and also uh, senators and congressmen in the United States Congress have been uh, extraordinarily uh, supportive. Just yesterday, uh, Speaker of Speaker Pelosi issued very strong statement in solidarity with the Uyghur people, uh, which is um, admirable, <clears throat> and and the other countries should follow that example. And also the, the, the uh, uh, second uh, concern uh, to me is very um, um, uh, worrisome is the way that the Chinese government using Uyghur's life uh, and their homeland as a laboratory for surveillance state. Uh, New York Times reported last month that there are about 18 countries. Um, uh, some of the countries shouldn't be surprised to us, but I, I saw when I, when I see the name Germany, uh, I had very... Um, uh, concerning reaction, and also uh, the 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 Chinese police, as we uh, as reported in the media, training a police force in New Zealand. So this is this threat is real. Uh, in the end, uh, if this model is promoted as the Global Times, uh, the Chinese tabloid, uh, comfortably promoting, we will have a much bigger issue to deal with. The Chinese government uh, officials have been promoting, including uh, the. Uh, US, uh, the Chinese ambassador to Washington, Sui Tianke, said uh, this should be a model 
for the world to look into uh, to tackle so-called Muslim problems. And also, we should um, urge the Congress um, to pass these two legislation currently being uh, considered, the UHRP Act and the Uyghur Act. The Senate version already been voted out of the committee, um, and it's building momentum. Uh, these two legislation, uh, initially introduced, uh, bipartisan legislation introduced by Senators uh, Rubio and Menendez, and Swazi and Smith on the House side, and then there's another bill uh, introduced by uh, uh, Congressman Ted Yoho and Brad Sherman that have been actively considered. So I, I encourage you to uh, contact your members uh, to ask them to support these bills. That would be not only uh, a very substantive, but also historic. In the Uyghur's modern history, no government, no legislative body ever done anything similar to this uh, legislative initiative being considered. Um, <clears throat> if, the, um, if taking on China uh, diplomatically uh, is difficult, the U.S. government should also consider um, helping the Uyghur students and asylum seekers. Uh, we have a precedent uh, back in 1990s after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, the Bush administration, uh, the senior Bush administration, uh, with the help of Congress, uh, provided a blanket immigration status to uh, Chinese students living, uh, studying in the United States. The, even though the numbers is not that big, uh, the, there, there are at least a couple thousand of Uyghurs currently um, uh, struggling to pay their tuition uh, because sending money back and forth is also considered uh, a reason for the Chinese government to send the family members to the camps. And some of those students are running out of status, uh, and their passports cannot be renewed. When they go to the embassy, the embassy said that we can give you a travel document to return to China. Uh, you can imagine what will happen to that individual, because the United States is one of the 26 countries that individuals can be uh, in, get into trouble if you have a travel history or if you have a family connection. And the Radio Free Asia, uh, the United States government uh, should, should expand uh, Radio Free Asia's coverage. Without Radio Asia's investigative reporting initially, we would not know much of the things were happening, including the scholars who disappeared. Uh, there are at least um, three dozen world-known scholars documented by my organization and Radio Free Asia have disappeared. That includes presidents of major universities, scholars who studied and conducted research here in Europe, in Japan. So the Radio Free Asia work uh, should, be, uh, should be something that the U.S. Congress can uh, easily support by increasing funding. And also we know that the uh, uh, Olympic, um, International Olympic Committee has a big role to play. Chinese government cares so much about how it's being portrayed in the international uh, communities. Uh, there are hosting 2022 Winter Olympics, and uh, we will have a Summer Olympics next year. The International Olympic Committee should pressure China to shut down these camps if China still wants to host the Winter Olympics in two years, three years. Um, and finally, uh, the business community has a huge responsibility uh, in, this, in this crisis. Um, Washington Post reported um, that at least two uh, retirement pension funds currently being uh, currently investing in this company called Hikvision that makes world one-third of world security cameras and largely responsible for assisting the Chinese government to set up the current um, police state. And also, uh, we should also encourage our government, the Congress, to uh, 
banned companies um, or sanctioned companies exporting technology or equipment mm -hmm. uh, or technical assistance to Chinese government and its uh, technology companies, Hikvision, uh, Dafa, and others, that has been in the news uh, recently. Um, so it's, it's past time for action. Um, we, heard, we have heard enough, and we know how it ends when the government specifically targets an ethnic group or religious minority. We've seen how this ends in the, in the history. I'd like to end with this uh, note, uh, sombering note. We're sitting in a time bomb, taking time bomb. Here's why. If the Chinese government wins or succeeds in this effort, the human engineering reprogramming effort, this proud nation will be destroyed. The Uyghur's centuries-old ethnic tradition, national identity will be destroyed. If the Chinese government fails, what are they going to do with those two, three million people? Are they going to release them on the street? Well, we're going to see some serious casualties. So it's for you uh, in the audience and those who are listening, watching this program or this meeting, to think about specific steps to rectify this humanitarian crisis have entered its third year as we speak. Great, thank you. That last point was so important because uh, even as you watch a situation like this, it is evolving. And if you look at historically at similar uh, sorts of problems, it's not static. They don't, you know, you can't characterize them the same over the decades that they are, they remain a problem. And they could, it could worsen. Thank you. Uh, Adrian. maybe some new bits. Um, I'm sure you've all been studiously memorizing the Heritage Report, and so you're fully informed. So all I need to do is uh, add to it, right? <laughs> Good. So in 2018, we had a year where a lot of evidence was gathered for widespread education and internment network in Xinjiang, um, some of the facilities are specifically for re-education, but we have really a wide range of forms of internment going on in Xinjiang. Then, as China was increasingly challenged at the United Nations and other forums about the situation, um, the whole situation shifted into what I would call a battle of narratives, a battle of claims and counterclaims were charges of internment, of human rights violations, etc. And since then, Beijing has embarked on a very elaborate or increasingly elaborate propaganda campaign in order to neutralize Western claims and in order to basically get away with what it is doing. But there's one really weak spot, and I would like to point that out again. The weak spot for Beijing is the concept of re-education or literally translated transformation through re-education. This is a concept that can be traced back to the re-education through labor system that was established under Mao Zedong in 1957, and more recently for the treatment of the Falun Gong in the 2000s in Chinese Jiaoyu Zhuanhua. China has never challenged any evidence related to this concept, nor has it ever challenged my findings. Um, there's a detailed trail of evidence between past and present forms of re-education. As a result of some of the research, including my own reports on the situation in Xinjiang, 
Beijing started to carefully remove and avoid some and many of the references to the concept of transformation through re-education. For example, it completely stopped issuing new bid documents on the matter, indicating that this is the weak spot in a narrative. Now, more recently, China's propaganda strategy is to focus on the so-called vocational skills education training centers listed, oh, can you see this on the small screen, yeah? Okay, and there, okay, it's quite small, I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> Hope you all brought your magnifying glasses and all that, your spy cameras. Uh, this is point eight, good. Thought everybody's so quiet, nobody, nobody can see anything. Okay, now I understand it, good. okay. Point eight is the, the eighth one. That's the one that Beijing says, yes, those exist, those we have, and those we do for the purpose of de-extremification, and they're really good, and look at our happy trainees who are dancing and singing for you when you come and visit our model camps, the two or three select model camps that have been specially prepared for visiting audiences. However, it's important to realize that simply for extra legal internment and re-education, there's up to eight different types of facilities as reflected in official government documents. And highlighted in red are those that have the term transformation through education in their name. And then there's a ninth form that has become increasingly important, which are the detention centers that exist all over China and are technically part of a formal criminal justice system. However, they are used to keep people to determine whether formal charges should be pressed against them or not. And in Xinjiang, they can be kept there for one or two or more years, which is actually not legal. There's no legal, uh, there's no law in China that actually allows people to be held extrajudicially for that amount of time without any verdict or trial or any reason given. Now, these vocational training internment camps, how I prefer to call them, in contrast to Beijing, are only one of multiple forms of re-education internment. And I think it's important to highlight that. When we talk about countering the Chinese propaganda strategy, we need to highlight that that's only one and the perhaps most benign form of internment, possibly, with possibly less accounts of torture or violence, possibly, they, of course, contain less than one million because they're only one of nine, right? The Chinese say much less than one million. They can't give us an exact figure. They say because people are being released and admitted all the time. Well, they have very good statistics on other things. Uh, but anyways, all forms of internment combined may contain up to 1.5 million or one of six in the adult Muslim minority population, which is my speculative upper limit estimate. There's uh, no way to have exact figures. How many police do you need to secure a vocational training internment camp, or how Beijing says, education and vocational training education center? Now, one of the budget documents from one of the counties with um, a large Uyghur and other minority population says very clearly and very honestly that a vocational training center or centers have 810 assistant police forces. That's a lot of police for a vocational training camp. Previously, I found uh, a procurement bid for 260 special police outfits in uh, another camp. 
To conclude my presentation, since I don't need to add all the known facts, I thought I'd show you something new. Just one or two weeks ago, I was anonymously given these fascinating 3D models, and this is really a really new way to present evidence in a place where evidence is almost impossible to get because you can't just pull out your camera and start to photograph these things and then walk away uh, to give them to the Western world. This is a minority person in northern Urumqi who was able to visit, uh, just as a visitor, together with a friend who is a police person, what is officially called a vocational training school. It's not, it's not even called a vocational training center. It's just called a vocational training school, and these are typically institutions that we would not have considered to be part of this internment campaign. But apparently, it's been turned into a walled and guarded compound and expanded, and satellite images prove it. Uh, building A is where, according to this eyewitness who visited this, um, where the detainees asleep, and B is the teaching building. The bus stop sign says which is the classic term for a vocational re-education or internment camp in Xinjiang. This is my own screenshot. I, I double-checked the site I was given, and uh, this is a very small image. I apologize, but if you look it up yourself, you can clearly see the red circles in the corners are watchtowers. You see uh, high fencing around every building, which is consistent with the witness account, and you see the long teaching building in red circle, also surrounded by fencing. It's very hard to see on these kind of screens. I apologize for that, but um, it's better to see it on my Retina MacBook screen. Inside the teaching building, we have the person using this 3D modeling software to recreate what they saw. And I just think this is really stunning. Detainees, in this case all women, behind high metal fencing, the teacher and the blackboard in front. So there's no way somebody can get angry and hit a teacher because they're literally fenced in inside the classroom. You also notice a guard person in front of every classroom and a, uh, a gated iron bar door that additionally locks every classroom just in case somebody could get out. And they were learning Chinese, the person who visited this and who anonymously gave me this information and made these pictures said they were learning basic Chinese. These were minorities, Uyghurs, all women. And they were women of all ages, including ones with fully white hair, who were obviously 65, 70 plus years old. So in sum, we are at a stage now where in order to counter the Chinese propaganda, we need to realize that the Chinese state continues to find it hard to counter direct factual evidence. They have never really been able to directly or consistently or convincingly counter factual evidence. Rather, they try to focus on refuting the irrefutable. If we become overly speculative and we make assumptions, and this is also actually one of the disadvantages of a loaded term such as concentration camp, because that can mean even though it's technically completely accurate, it concentrates people in one spot, and that's what these things do. But it's also a very historically charged term, and then the Chinese go and refute it, which from one angle they can, from another they can't. But we need to be very precise, I think, in our terminology. Otherwise, we give the Chinese a broadside that they can 
that they can end up refuting just 20% of what we say. And I think we, it would be better if we don't give them that opportunity. They all seek to distract from the irrefutable. Yeah, this whole thing about vocational training is true. There are internment facilities in Xinjiang that produce uh, vocational training and probably feed into forced labor, etc. and more research on that is needed. But they, of course, try to blow that up as the main thing. But as I've shown you, vocational training camps are just one of nine forms of internment in Xinjiang. And that does not include the formal prison system. Prisons are separate from any of... We are only talking extrajudicial detention here. Finally, as also my um, the previous speaker, Nuri Turkel, has very ap- accurately pointed out, it is really now that we have also so much evidence out in the open. It is really up to national governments and international bodies such as the United Nations to take on the facts, to highlight them, to speak of them, and to act on them. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adrian. That was... Uh, <clears throat> That was very important background. I appreciate what you said about the historical comparisons. I think that's a very good point and something that maybe we can avoid getting into during the course of this conversation because uh, like anything compared to the monstrosity of uh, Nazi Germany, it's hard to uh, it, it's hard to make any use of it. Right? So, uh, so I, I agree with you and I hope we, we can avoid that going forward. Uh, let me turn it over to Olivia. Um, So my junior year of college, I took a class on the negative impacts of communism worldwide. And during the course of that class, we had to read a book called The Black Book of Communism. And this book, I highly commend to anybody who is interested in this subject matter area because it provides sort of conservative estimates on the number of people who have died as a consequence of communism, but also provides specifics about the types of tactics that communist-motivated regimes often exact against its people. And so, of course, Asia featured really prominently in this textbook with details about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, um, how communism manifested itself in Vietnam, um, Laos, uh, North Korea, which, of course, today there's still uh, between 80,000 to 120,000 people in in political uh, prison camps there. And then, of course, China featured incredibly prominently inside of this book. And um, especially uh, the Cultural Revolution. And I, I don't think that I expected in my lifetime that I would be reading about elements of the Cultural Revolution essentially repeating themselves over again. But I think that that's really where we're at today. And that was a huge influence for me in writing the paper that I hope you all got on your way uh, in here. If you did not, they'll be available outside. Um, But this is hot off the presses literally this morning, um, responding to the crisis in Xinjiang. And the motivation for writing it was, you know, not only are we dealing with a crisis of immense proportions, and I will note this in particular, I purposefully chose not to call it a human rights crisis because I think a lot of times when we call it a human rights crisis, it gets written off as something that only folks in the government who handle human rights and values issues should deal with. But this is something that affects both human rights in a serious way and also national security issues in a serious way, as Mary highlighted in his own remarks and and as did Adrian. So I think you'll see that 
as a theme throughout my remarks today. I want to provide three reasons why the U.S. government should act, because I think what's been really shocking to me is that there's been really strong condemnation, especially as Mary outlined from the Vice President, from Ambassador Brownback, incredible leadership of individuals highlighting this issue. But we're still a couple of years into this ongoing crisis, and no tangible practical action has been taken. So I want to give three reasons why uh, the action should be taken. And then, as Walter said, in typical heritage fashion, highlight some of our top line items. Uh, there are additional recommendations inside of this paper, but I'm going to provide five for us to consider here today. Um, the first reason why I think we should respond to the crisis in Xinjiang is because history is, in fact, repeating itself. Um, as I referenced before, I think we're seeing uh, elements of the Cultural Revolution manifesting themselves in the modern day. And I think this is especially clear when we consider that collectivization, mass collectivization of the Uyghurs is, in fact, taking place. Um, as Nuri highlighted, this principle of re-education didn't just come out come about today. It's something that has been a historical part of the Chinese government's own thinking. And one of the ways that this is the case is um, the Chinese Communist Party is essentially um, has identified all forms of religion as extremism when they passed their regulations on religious affairs last year. And in particular, the Uyghurs have been facing perhaps some of the most severe consequences of that decision to so-called sinicize religion, which is China's uh, attempt to make religion conform with the Chinese Communist Party's thinking. And back in the Cultural Revolution, uh, their primary objective was to rectify, quote-unquote, wrong thinking. And this comes from the Black Book of Communism, to make it so that it aligned with Marxism-Leninism, faith in Maoism and socialism, the Communist Party, and the democratic dictatorship of the people. This is not unlike what we're seeing happening with the sinicization of all religions today. Um, and in, in particular, for example, Uyghurs are often sent to the political re-education facilities or their activities were, are viewed as suspicious because they have a beard or because they refuse to smoke or they refuse to drink, which are t core tenets of the Muslim faith and, and could be a sign that they are in fact Uyghur, Uyghurs. But this is why China deems it suspicious. So it is, it is essentially an attack on religious beliefs. Um, second, we see sort of similarities to the Cultural Revolution in terms of the percentage of the population that is being placed inside of these re-education facilities. During the Cultural Revolution, there were roughly 2.5 million people uh, who were placed in these facilities, which constituted a um, confining of 4% of the urban population and 1.2% of the rural population. But today in Xinjiang, some people estimate that as many as 15% of the population are being held inside these political re-education facilities. An additional similarity to the Cultural Revolution is that forced labor um, is likely taking place there. And the political re-education facilities themselves are oftentimes sharing their facilities with quote-unquote legitimate enterprises. Um, the Associated Press, for example, reported that a uh, Chinese company, Hetian uh, Taida, um, had, was actually sharing its facility with uh, a political re-education facility inside of Xinjiang. And right now, the U.S. government is, in, is investigating whether goods produced with forced labor in the political re-education facilities in Xinjiang made their way into the U.S. market through Badger Sportswear. And so we may actually have goods produced with forced labor from Xinjiang here in the U.S. This is pretty alarming. Um, 
the, the second point that I want to make overall, uh, and Nuri highlighted this briefly, is that China is exporting its tools of authoritarianism. Um, I think that we see this in, in large part through China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which they are using in some ways to export the types of surveillance technology that they're using in the context of Xinjiang. But we also see that China is using these surveillance efforts in its broader system through the social credit system inside of all of China. Um, and the paper goes into that in a little more detail. But there was a phenomenal Human Rights Watch report that came out about a month ago now that reverse engineered the application that the Chinese government was using and applying against residents in Xinjiang. And one of the examples that they gave was this application was monitoring people such that if they exited out the back door instead of exiting out the front door, this was deemed a suspicious activity that could land them inside a political re-education facility. I think this is pretty, pretty shocking. But examples of how China is using its technology inside of China are extraordinarily important, but it's also exporting those forms of technology outside of the country in places like Africa, as well as in Latin America, and others highlighted New Zealand and other places where they're pursuing training. But I want to highlight the example of Africa in particular because China's exporting of surveillance technology to Africa is not only so that the Chinese government itself can spy for their own purposes, but also so that the African governments themselves can spy on their people. So, for example, a Chinese SOE was commissioned to build the African Union uh, building, and they actually built microphones into the walls of this building, and then they made it so that between 2012 and 2017, they were getting nightly downloads from the servers inside of the African Union. So they're using the surveillance technology for their own purposes, but then in other instances in Zimbabwe, for example, they were... Um, they exported it to the government, um, and a Chinese SOE uh, had their technology that they gave to the Zimbabwean government. And then, um, actually, not only was the Zim Zimbabwean government spying on its people using this technology, um, but the SOEs were getting that data back inside of China so that they could, as uh, one report put it, use the darker faces from Africa in order to refine their own ability to use the technology. So private Zimbabwean citizens' data is going directly to China. This is incredibly concerning from a, a democratic and norms perspective and certainly from a national security perspective. Um, the third reason why the U.S. government should care and should act on this is that the U.S. government actually identifies in the national security strategy as well as in the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy um, that, that they are actually concerned about values issues, that this is a priority for U.S. policy inside of Asia. And the national security strategy in particular, um, this is looking at China and Russia, says, quote, uh, they are determined to make economies less free and less fair, to grow their militaries and to control information and data to repress their societies and expand their influence. In placing this in the national security strategy, it communicates that this is a priority for the U.S. And Xinjiang, I think, exemplifies the type of concerns that we are most concerned about and should be addressing. But the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy says directly that values are a top priority of the government. Free, for example, encapsulates a commitment to promoting sovereignty of the U.S. and other countries in Asia, 
freedom from coercion and promoting human rights. And open means open communication um, as well as open trade. And so the values themselves are written into this Indo-Pacific strategy. And Vice President Pence, I think, put an even stronger point on this by saying the Indo-Pacific strategy supports transparent and responsive government, the rule of law, and the protection of individual rights, including religious freedom, nations that empower their citizens, nurture civil society, fight corruption, and guard their sovereignty, are stronger homes for their people, and better partners for the United States. Conversely, nations that oppress their people often violate their neighbor's sovereignty as well authoritarianism and aggression have no place in the Indo-Pacific region. And so I would ask the U.S. government, what better way to promote values in the Indo-Pacific, in the Asian context, than to respond to one of the world's worst human rights abuses taking place today? So now I want to quickly, very, very quickly, move on to the next steps that the U.S. government should take. These, as I mentioned, are just the top-line items. You'll find additional recommendations inside of the paper. But um, the first is to advance the national security strategy and the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy by responding with strength to the crisis in Xinjiang. We need to be clear about who and what agencies are specifically responsible for instituting the values component of the Indo-Pacific strategy. I've asked people in State Department, um, in the Vice President's office, in Indo-PACOM, who's responsible for actualizing the values component of the Indo-Pacific strategy, and I have yet to get an answer. We need to get to the bottom of this so that we can start responding to serious violations of human rights like those taking place in Xinjiang. And I think this point is really critical. The U.S. should place responding to mass arbitrary internment in Xinjiang as a much higher foreign policy priority in its dealing with China than it currently does because China views Xinjiang as a core issue, as a fundamental threat to itself. And so it's time for the U.S. government to prioritize it as well. And I want to underscore something that I said earlier um, in the conversation, which is that Xinjiang is more than a human rights crisis. China's exportation of surveillance technology makes China makes Xinjiang a national security concern to U.S. policymakers. And I think ways that we can prioritize these issues um, would, one, reiterate Secretary Pompeo's call for all prisoners inside of these facilities to be immediately released. Two, as Nuri mentioned, to highlight and call on the International Olympic Committee to reconsider China's suitability to host the Olympics and raise these issues in the midst of ongoing negotiations with China on other issues. The second recommendation I have is to sanction Chen Guangguo specifically. Adrian has done phenomenal research highlighting how Chen Guangguo was responsible for architecting repression in both Tibet and in Xinjiang. He is directly responsible for the serious violations that are going on there, and at a minimum, he should be held responsible, but also other Chinese individuals and entities should be sanctioned under Global Magnitsky, if not under other sanctioning authorities. Third, we should create a special coordinator for the serious challenges going on in Xinjiang. This person can be responsible for compiling lists of names of individuals who should be sanctioned, but also will bear primary responsibility for hopefully building out that values component also of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Four, we should target and address forced labor in Xinjiang wherever it takes place. Um, This includes applying Section 307 of the Tariff Act of 1930, and also consider creating a rebuttable presumption that all individuals who are forced to labor in Xinjiang, we cannot accept those 
those goods and should stop them right at the border should they uh, in any way appear to be uh, imported into the U.S. And then fifth, and Nuri highlighted this as well, is to put diplomatic pressure on businesses to cut ties with Chinese entities seeking dual-use technologies from U.S. entities for the purpose of expanding surveillance. We've seen that even the suggestion of potential government action from Congress has led Thermo Fisher, for example, to discontinue its um, exporting of certain forms of technology um, to China. We hope other businesses will follow suit, and we should think strategically about how the U.S. government can help to encourage businesses to do the right thing. Um, and with that, I'll go ahead and end. We can open it up okay. to Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. That was terrific. Um, I, um, I certainly agree with you about needing to prioritize this. I mean, part of the problem I think that we have is that um, the U.S. government always has a problem prioritizing its concerns with China uh, because when everything is a problem, then nothing is really a problem. Everything is a priority. Nothing is a priority. So in some ways, the administration is addressing that because this is clearly not a priority. So <laughs> they've taken some things off the table in order to get at the things they care about most and to emphasize trade relationships and all the rest. Uh, so may maybe uh, maybe Senator Brownback will uh, disabuse us of that, uh, of that uh, perception, but that does seem to be the case. I want to open up to questions. I've got a couple myself, so while you think about it and decide when you're going to raise your hand, I'm going to ask those, uh, at least one of them. Um, I wanted to come back to the the matter of uh, information. A Adrian had this slide that had the Chinese reaction refuting the refutable, uh, uh, diverting on the irrefutable, et cetera. But it seems like another critical um, part of the way that they're handling this very successfully, you have to you, you have to acknowledge, right? I mean, they're they're handling the bad press and the concern globally very successfully. There's no pressure from us or anyone else to, to really change anything significant. Um, but, but part of it that's enabling would seem to be uh, blocking access. So where do you even find good information? You've done a, such good, uh, good original research on this, and, and I know that we can get in through the Uyghur communities in, in some ways. But unless you're getting uh, you know, uh, news outlets on the ground, unless you're getting in there to report on this and give credible information, the Chinese can always say, well, you, you know, his, look at it, he did modeling, okay? They weren't real photographs, they were models. It could be anybody. Yeah, I could draw up a model myself, you know? Uh, there's, that enables, it seems, their ability to refute what is out there. So how do you, how do you get more information from the ground? So, um, I think there's more potential to explore what the Chinese government itself says about these camps. There's more information uh, around. And even though I did say that they have uh, tried to avoid certain keywords and stop publishing certain documents, at the same time, I'm also in the process of trying to find and finding more specific information using different terminology. And um, as they sort of sometimes change and adjust their language, uh, I think our goal is to track that and follow and um, find documents that use this language and then get the maximum out of them. I think there's a lot more potential in that. And um, I think the other aspect is um, the witness accounts like the one that um, I presented here, and there's other witness accounts that we try to 
uh, collate that kind of information and try to verify it, and that we're just trying to be quite accurate in what we are saying about these things. And um, thirdly, my, my suggestion is really that the media and governments and everybody and advocacy groups sharpen their language and their narrative. Just be quite precise. Reduce the amount of uh, claims that could be refuted, that are refutable, even though they might be true. And keep refocusing on the core issues when they try to distract. Yeah, that's important because one bit of bad information can spoil the information from 10 other sources. Um, what, what do you think about that, Nuri? Is there a, how do we get good, reliable information on the ground uh, to supplement the kind of work that Adrian's doing? The, um, since the, um, the media scrutiny uh, started uh, uh, early last year, the Chinese government has been put on defense. Uh, they've been trying to change the narrative um, by reconstructing the headline, uh, including to bring Western journalists and sympathetic diplomatic corps to visit those Potemkin villages. But the, the information that they're putting out is, is, are not consistent with the survivors' personal account. Uh, we heard the testimony by Mihrugul Tursun last year at the U.S. Congress, and she, what she told the Congress, Congress are consistent with the, the survivors of those camps in Kazakhstan. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, a former detainee who is currently in, uh, in Istanbul. She collaborated that in information. And the other way that we've been uh, hearing um, credible information is the um, victim's family living in free societies who came out and testified. Uh, there is a movement, actually, in the social media uh, led by uh, family members of who have uh, been detained or disappeared. Um, they have been extraordinarily courageous. Uh, and I believe that there are more people uh, could come out uh, and tell their stories. And then the third is the, um, um, as Adrian pointed out, the Chinese government in of itself uh, is making, making it public. The iconic image, the detainees sitting in the guard, uh, in the uh, inside wired bar, a wired uh, a compound is one incident they accidentally released and then deleted it. And also the quote that I uh, used in my opening remark was an actual quote by the Chinese government when they asked about why do they construct. So the government, personal accounts, and media have been extraordinarily helpful in getting um, information close to the, uh, uh, the reality. I, I remember, I'm sorry. I just remembered one thing I was going to say, uh, which I forgot as I was rambling on. Um, reading between the lines of government propaganda. So the government produces internal documents that are more straightforward in what they say, but they produce outward propaganda also for Chinese domestic audience. And um, I'm in the process of analyzing more of these propaganda accounts, these glorious accounts, and what good it does. And I'm of the opinion that one can really read between the lines and draw some very powerful conclusions from some of the things they're giving away in some of those documents. And also, and if you, I forgot to mention this. When you look at the, um, um, the, the thought leaders, academics, and, and policy advisors in saying uh, in their publications, specifically to those, uh, uh, those two individuals, this has been documented by Australian scholar uh, James Label. 
he uh, looked at all the policy initiatives, including that famous uh, final solution to the Xinjiang problem, was actually promoted to Xi Jinping for a number of years, and finally got his attention after Chen Chuanguo got that position uh, in August 2016. So there's a collaborative effort in the, uh, uh, the uh, strategists within the Chinese government to use that historic reference that you were cautionary about as a model um, to solve this problem. And Olivia is absolutely right. This has a strong geopolitical context. The Chinese government's way of starting this, the timing, their China dream, Belt and Road Initiative, their expansionist uh, activist diplomatic uh, initiatives, policies, all comes together. So this, this, is, this requires global condemnation. I cannot emphasize enough of the importance. Our values, our democratic system, our rule of law, free, uh, free expression are under threat. Yeah, I was just going to quickly add that our China scholar, Dean Cheng, always says that when you're reading things about China, sometimes what they don't say is almost more important than what they do. So I just wanted to underscore that, because I, I think that's what Adrian was getting at. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, we got microphones. Christina Olney with the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Thank you for your presentations. This week marks the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. And ever since that day of June 4, 1989, the Chinese Communist Party has been working very hard, as you know, to erase that incident from memory. Uh, because that day, the party lost its legitimacy, and it fundamentally changed the way that the Chinese people view the party. And the reason it's doing that is because it's very afraid. The Chinese Communist Party is uh, doing everything they can to uh, protect uh, the security of the party, the security and the ability of the party to govern. And this is why they are uh, persecuting and oppressing entire ethnic and religious populations like the Uyghurs, like the Tibetans, like the Falun Gong, like the Christians. And although there are some narratives that um, the uh, Chinese people have been successfully appeased by the party, um, we are seeing hundreds of incidents every day in China of resistance to what the party is doing. So my question for you is, um, what uh, resistance are we seeing from uh, East Turkestan, Xinjiang? Um, and uh, what is the significance? That would be my question for you, Nuri. And my question for you, Adrian, would specifically be, um, can you talk about the significance of the change in narrative that you talked about of the CCP uh, in lying blatantly about what's happening there and why they've done this uh, and how it's related to the ideology of the party? Thanks. Start, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the narratives um, that we are seeing in Xinjiang is, uh, are like salvation narratives. Like um, one of the documents I came across uh, in last week's literally talked about the detainees who go through the training and the camps and then being really, well, not released, but uh, being put to labor basically um, are, are like. The, the, the term was they are 
their process of being born again. Um, I looked it up, the exact same Chinese phrase as in John 3, 6, which Jesus says, you must be born again. Yeah. Plus, you know, I mean, giving thanks before meals. I mean, there's, there's a lot of copycatting going on um, from religion. And, of course, communism seeks to replace religion. Um, it's, it's a very dedicated effort to change the core allegiance of what really people identify with first. The um, re-education camps are a, a really brutal fight over the human heart. And it's consistent with communist ideology to describe that as like a liberation or redemption through labor. Because in communist liberation, of course, you empower the human being who is being enslaved by whatever um, by giving them honest work, fair work, theoretically. You know, I mean, it's amazing how communist regimes have a track record of um, uh, labor abuse and, and underpayment and everything. But, um, and not allowing, of course, labor unions and no strikes and protests, but that's a different topic. I mean, this is just quite the inconsistency, but the, the, the topic of like we, we give you, we put you to work, and by putting you to work, you are becoming a new person, and maybe your material conditions improve, although if you look at the wages they get paid, then I'm kind of doubtful about that claim, but um, uh, like a whole salvation narrative that's being associated, and look, we are being gracious, instead of putting these extremists to prison, we give them a chance, and they can go to a training camp and get a skill, which supposedly they don't have. Although, you, as you know, there's intellectuals, doctors, engineers, teachers, and everybody in these camps. Um, and then you can, you can work hard and, and get a new life instead of idle pursuit of spirituality, etc. So um, I think the Chinese, in that sense, are being very honest, actually. being very It's very consistent with the... The whole ideology, what China does in, what Beijing does in Xinjiang, really exposes the depth of the CCP ideology. It's a, it's a reflection of their core beliefs and the extent to which they go to change human beings and even entire ethnic groups in line with their ideology. It's extremely consistent, and therefore I think uh, Xinjiang really exposes what the CCP stands for and is capable of. And when we talk about Xinjiang being a model for suppressing other parts of China, other religious groups, I would say absolutely. Xinjiang exemplifies what China is, what the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is capable of. And that is, as Nuri has been appealing, why urgent and clear action is needed on Xinjiang. Because if the world does not respond to what's going on in Xinjiang, it is failing to respond to a model of oppressing human souls, no matter what faith they believe in, that could easily serve as a model for oppressing any human soul on this planet. I'd like to add that that's an excellent point. Um, the, when you look at the, the official lines why do they have a problem with the Uyghur's ethno-national identity, religious practices? Simply because CCP perceived those uh, hallmarks as a sign of disloyalty. 
it goes to the heart of CCP's sense of insecurity, sense of Xi Jinping's sense of insecurity, because China is a one-man country now. It's a one-man show. So anything goes out of hand will undermine Xi, Jin, uh, Xi Jinping's leadership, uh, CCP's survival. Therefore, when you look at it, it's like ideological front. Yeah, the Uyghur's ethno-national identity, the way of appreciating the cultural culture, the practice of religion, is not in line with uh, the Communist Party ideology. That's why they're attacking the very existence of the Uyghur uh, uh, idea or the, uh, the cultural heritage. And then um, uh, resistance. This is actually, uh, the Chinese government did not, uh, maybe did not predict this, but this gives the Uyghurs uh, a really good opportunity to, to rally behind one idea of uh, saving their culture, the national existence, maybe something else in the future. And finally, this is also helping the Uyghurs globally. The world, especially the United States thought leaders and policy experts, start seeing what CCP, what China is, is really about and through the prison of the Uyghurs being treated. Thank you. You know, I know I shouldn't try this in Washington, but I'm going to try it. Um, can we get two questions and answers in in five minutes? We'll try to take two questions, and then if you all can respond briefly, yeah. not necessarily all of you, but if you can respond briefly, then we can bring Senator Brown back up to, uh, to uh, address us. So two quick questions, one over there. Uh, so this uh, question is regarding the consequences of taking action uh, in China. So we know that the Chinese regime is very clever and at the same time brutal. Um, and there are billions of other Chinese people uh, that are you know, scared to do anything or maybe even convinced that, that the CCP is right. So if we take action, uh, how do we prevent ourselves from basically alienating the people that do support the CCP or are too scared uh, in that um, we do something and we become scapegoats? So... Chinese say, we do something, and oh, this program went wrong because they intervened. It's their fault. Uh, and we kind of, we give them uh, uh, basically uh, ammunition to use against us and to convince their people uh, to continue to try to do those things. So we, we know we, our, our Western Valley says we need to do something about this. We should do something. Mm -hmm. uh, but have we thought about the consequences of taking any action if we really do believe like oppressing souls is the most terrible thing you can do, uh, we should, I believe that the Chinese people themselves are powerful enough to, to fight against the regime as long as we don't, uh, uh, you know, basically empower the CCP to continue their narrative. Um, so finding ways or just thinking about those consequences. That's a very good question. Uh, and then let's take one more on this side somewhere. Uh, it's tough. <laughs> right, just right here then. Sorry, I can't get everybody in there. Um, so I was just wondering uh, for the two speakers, um, on a social, cultural level, what happens to these men and women once they are essentially re-educated? Are they ever released from these prisons? Are they allowed to go back home to their families? And what happens to those communities after they leave the camps? Yeah, thank you. Sarah, you went right down here. This one. And then, really, if you could keep it keep brief. Olivia, in particular, I'd appreciate your response to the first question. Uh, yes, I'm Russell King, a retired uh, government employee. Uh, I'd like to know the policies towards um, uh, birth control. I know you know, they had the one-child and two-child policies. Uh, one, one person said sometimes they have race-specific um, birth control, and uh, a China expert said they don't have that. But 
could you discuss specifically how the contraception birth control policy affects the Uyghurs and minorities in Xinjiang and also access to health care? I understand that there's a problem with access to health care for minorities. Thank you. I'll answer that one, too, just very briefly. So first to your question over here. So you used the term Western values. I would sort of reframe that a little bit and say these are universal values that are being fundamentally violated here. And I don't think that that has anything to do with East or West. And I think that it's really important for the U.S. to continue to promote values wherever we see them threatened throughout the world. And I think that, you know, authoritarian governments, whether it's North Korea, China, you know, or elsewhere throughout the world, will always like to place the blame on the U.S., but that shouldn't discourage us from continuing to advocate for freedom where we see it being violated. And I think that we strongly would agree with your general tenet that People, the people themselves are the primary engines of change. And so I don't think we want the U.S. government to get in the way of them being able to defend themselves. But if there are ways that the U.S. government can create greater space for their voices to be heard, I think that that is something we should always pursue. And so that's the, that was sort of the motivation behind a lot of the recommendations that are in the paper is what action can the U.S. government take that would generate greater space for the Chinese people? And then on the um, two-child policy, so um, Heritage actually wrote a paper. Um, I was one of the co-authors on this. It's called The Economic and Humanitarian Case for Why China Should Rescind the Two-Child Policy. There are a lot of really good reasons for why they should do that, and it's actually in the Chinese government interest to do so. Um, I imagine that ethnic communities like the Uyghurs in particular face especially um, stringent restrictions. One thing that people don't realize is that even though two children are permitted, every person basically has to seek approval from the Chinese government to even have one child or to even have two children. And so it's not even guaranteed that they get to have uh, one child or two children. So it's really the Chinese government needs to get out of what are personal family decisions about the size of the fam family, and so there are good reasons for them to do that. Okay. Great. Adrian and then, and then uh, Nuri can, can wind this up. We've got 60 seconds. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've completely failed on the five-minute thing, by the way. That's not yet been a to response to what happens here. to... Uh, the situation at the moment is that very few people are being released. Mm. Effectively, the most common form of, I would not call release, of change of situation is that detainees are being put to work, uh, learning a skill and then actually practicing it in a factory. Um, some are released into house arrest, especially elderly and sick. Uh, where they basically can't really go anywhere, their communication is completely monitored. And most uh, people, as far as we know, are still being interned. Um, consequence. The, uh, Secretary Pompeo said that the China has its own leak when it comes to human rights violation. The consequence, the specific consequence, is that they're using the United States and other governments uh, criticizing or speaking out on, the, on these atrocities as a way to undermine uh, these uh, concerns by stating this was a Western um, uh, conspiracy. They're trying to undermine our, our rise. So this has nothing to do with the way that we're treating people. That's one uh, obvious consequence we have seen. 
And then the what happened to these Uyghurs? Uh, we Radio Free Asia reported three incidents. One, two of them, uh, two stories involves two religious leaders who were taken in, and after uh, they died in prison. So the the conversion therapy did not work. Actually, one of them was uh, promoted and uh, assigned by the Chinese government to translate Quran from Arabic to Uyghur. It was the most revered uh, Uyghur scholar, religious scholar, who died in prison. And then the other one, the U.S. educated graduate student uh, with two master's degrees returned to serve his homeland. He was detained because he was intoxicated with Western ideology. Nine days after he was released, he died because of the physical injuries. Population control. They have a new method. They're giving pills based on the uh, uh, witness testimonies we heard in the prisons. They stop minstrels, make them less reactionary emotion, emo emotional way when they have being shown the uh, uh, pictures of their children or loved ones. So they have, uh, this, is, this has to be uh, substantiated by a journalist or um, uh, investigators, but there's also a testimony being made about these mysterious pills that have been given to Uyghur ladies in the camps. Thank you. Well, with that, uh, please join me in thanking our panel before we turn to investors. Thank you. Um, I, with apologies to um, Ambassador Brownback, he, he served in the Senate, so I'm sure he's used to things getting behind schedule and, uh, and, 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 and people talking and sharing the breadth of their knowledge. Um, let me introduce him very, very briefly before we, we hear from him. Uh, Senator Brown, Bam, Brownback, Senator Sam Brownback, is Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom. Uh, from my own time in Washington um, and a period where I served on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff that coincided with his own service in the senator, uh, as a senator, uh, I can tell you that religious liberty has been a central cause of his career for a very long time. His involvement in passage of the historic International Religious Freedom Act, which created his current position, created his office, and created the U.S. Committee on International Religious Freedom, among many other, many other things that have kept uh, these issues front and center in, in Washington's debate. It's hard, to, it's hard to remember that we didn't always do this, but, but his office and he himself at this point is doing a, doing a great job to, to keep this at the forefront, and the passage of that act uh, very much enabled it. Uh, those things are just one aspect of his service. In addition to serving in the Senate for 15 years, Ambassador Brownback was a member of the House for a short period, and he was also governor of Kansas for eight years. Uh, so I don't think we can forget any of those things. He has a long, very distinguished uh, career, and it's a real honor to welcome him to the Heritage Stage today. Thank you. Suzanne, good to see you all. Thank you all for being here uh, today and, uh, and for Heritage sponsoring this over the years. And he went through some of my uh, past. I was recently uh, up at the UN and a guy that was waiting on our table wanted to meet with me afterwards, and I uh, talked with him, and as I went to meet him, he said, oh, I've never met a vintage U.S. politician before. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Thank you. Uh, but uh, as I've been able to work over the years in a number of different capacities, Heritage has always been there uh, with different issues, with sponsorships, with ideas, uh, with analysis, and so thank you. Uh, thank you guys for the role that you've played, and you're playing now uh, on this and the issue of Xinjiang and what's taking place in China today. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the uh, 75th anniversary of D-Day. 
that uh, took place uh, yesterday and the celebrations that took uh, took place. I drove by the World War II Memorial uh, here in town. There was a big crowd gathered at it, and uh, what an amazing moment. I mean, this is a complete sidebar, but uh, what an amazing moment when 75 years ago the largest armada in world history ever took place. Uh, <clears throat> I texted, and not to drop names, but uh, Mary Eisenhower yesterday, because <clears throat> she uh, is granddaughter of Dwight Eisenhower and is uh, very knowledgeable about these things, obviously. <clears throat> the pressure that was on Dwight Eisenhower, then General Eisenhower at this time, was immense, and they uh, he had a lot of health issues going through it, even leading up to it. Even though he wasn't right out there in the fight, when you're planning it and you make the decisions to go or no-go and it all rests on you, it's a big deal. And it was a big deal, and it was, it was successful. Excuse me just a second. <clears throat> I want to thank the um, World Uyghur Congress, uh, a number of other groups that have been sponsors of different events this week uh, and what they've been, uh, they've been doing and the, the um, things that they've suffered under. I want to summarize the whole point uh, of my speech and then give some examples of why I'm saying these things uh, at the, um, uh, throughout the speech. The Chinese Communist Party will fail in their efforts that they are doing today to control religion throughout China. Uh, they are attempting to do something that no government has been successful in doing on a long-term basis. You may, get, you may have some success on a near-term basis, but a long-term basis. They are attempting to control a religion and the soul of man. Uh, no government has ever been successful in doing this. You can push it back for a while. You can hold it down for a while. But just like a sapling that comes up through the sidewalk, it will be back. Uh, and I want to give you a, a prime example I saw about a month ago. I was in Romania. Uh, Romania under the Communist Party for over 70 years, uh, and uh, then the com and communism fell. During the communist era, they constructed a parliament building. They took the land away from the Orthodox Church uh, in Romania, and they constructed a parliament building for this fake parliament that would meet a week a year, and it would rubber stamp whatever the party was saying at that time. Uh, and then they would go home, and then there was this beautiful structure. Well, after the fall of communism now, the parliament building has been given back to the Romanian Orthodox Church, and they're the ones that are back and occupying the building, not the Communist Party, which is in the ash heap of history. Uh, they're attempting to do something that will not succeed. They're attempting to go from the kingdom of man to control the kingdom of God. Uh, that will fail. You can have some impact for a period of time, uh, but it ultimately will fail. God is not mocked. You sow what you, what you sow, you will reap. Uh, and I call on all countries to condemn what China is doing to the Uyghurs and what they're doing to all faiths uh, in this war on faith that they're, that they're in. I want to make a confession, too, at the outset. Um, in 2001, I was in the United States Senate, and I voted to grant permanent most favored nation status to China. I did so thinking economic engagement with China would gradually alter their political behavior, that by experiencing greater economic opportunities, China would gradually grant more political freedoms as they became increasingly engaged with the West. I was wrong in that assessment, as were many others at that time. Over the last few years, we've seen increasing Chinese government persecution of religious believers of nearly all faiths and from all parts of the mainland. I believe the efforts by the Chinese government to exert control over members of many religious groups, the enforcement of 
so-called religious affairs regulations, the destruction of houses of worship, the unlawful imprisonment of religious leaders, and the actions to ruthlessly silence any form of constructive dissent demonstrates its disregard for the individual dignity of Chinese citizens. It is from this inherent dignity of the individual that religious freedom flows, a fundamental human right the Chinese Communist Party continues to trample on even though they recognize it in their own constitution that you have religious freedom. They've exhibited extreme hostility towards individuals seeking to peacefully practice their own faith. Whether they're Buddhist, Islam, Christianity, Falun Gong, all have come under increasing attacks from the Communist Party. I would note as well, the world is taking notice. In Xinjiang, the uh, topic of which your paper is and that you've had people present and you've had some wonderful experts uh, here, some of which I've been meeting with over some period of time. They're the ones who are the experts on it and know the details on the ground. But clearly, the Chinese government authorities have arbitrarily detained members of Muslim minority groups in forced labor camps for carrying out common religious practices, common things such as growing a beard, wearing a veil, attending services, observing Ramadan, sharing religious writings, or even praying. Officials have established a list of illegal baby names. This is the one I just think is amazing and galling, including the well-recognized Islamic name of Muhammad is now illegal to name your child in China. Since April 2017, authorities have detained different estimates, but ours and State Department, over one million ethnic Muslims. They've targeted and forcibly relocated to forced labor camps, Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, and members of other Muslim minority groups. Family members do not know the whereabouts of their loved ones or even whether they are dead or alive. I was with a Uyghur group yesterday, and there must have been 30 people in the room who held their hand up who have family members themselves. They don't know where they are and haven't heard from them in an extended period of time. Trump administration is deeply concerned and considers this oppression a deliberate attempt by Beijing to redefine and control Uyghur identity, culture, and faith. Now, China describes these sprawling camps featuring guard towers and barbed wire separating teachers and students as mere vocational training centers. I was in vocational agriculture, and the barbed wire was used to keep the cattle in, not people. We must call these centers what they are, forced labor camps, created to wipe out the culture and religious identity of minority communities. Numerous reports indicate that mainland authorities force innocent people into these camps, often based primarily off of their religious beliefs and their ethnic identity. They're held for indeterminate periods of time, subject to physical and psychological torture, intense political indoctrination, and forced labor. In November, one of the survivors of one of the camps testified in front of Congress. She testified about seeing brutally tortured at least nine people that she served, that she was in a cell with, and all of which died. The same woman was separated from her triplets, and one of her children died in Chinese government custody. China's deliberate efforts to strangle Uyghur culture and stamp out the Muslim faith extends far beyond the camp's razor wire enclosures, affecting every aspect of life for these ethnic minorities. Now, and here's the area that I think is China defining the future of oppression and what it's going to look like, including pervasive high-tech surveillance systems and monitoring throughout the region, including facial and gate recognition, 
technologies, draconian security measures in public spaces, house arrest, and restrictions on who can worship in the remaining mosque that the Communist Party hasn't bulldozed. Chinese Muslims are prevented from regular daily prayer, having their beards forcibly cut off, and are force-fed pork and alcohol. Chinese authorities are even targeting children. The Communist Party has forcibly taken thousands of minority children from their families and placed them in state-run orphanages. They're taught only Mandarin Chinese and are prevented from receiving religious or cultural education. This Orwellian blueprint of repression in Xinjiang has been actualized under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, and it is our great concern that they're going to expand and replicate this throughout the world. China has long used its economic weight to silence criticism of its severe human rights abuses. And here we should not falter in pushing back. Regardless of what they may have of an economic system, we need to stand with confidence on human rights and the right of the individual, the inherent dignity of the individual, to be able to practice their faith and to take care of their own soul as they see fit. I applaud the countries that have spoken out against China's abuses in Xinjiang. And I want to particularly cite the Turkish government for recently issuing a strong condemnation of the human rights crisis there. All countries should, with unanimous voice, condemn China's actions in Xinjiang. But it's not limited just there. Arguably, the systems developed in Xinjiang were started in Tibet earlier. China's oppression of religious believers, uh, excuse me, the Chinese government attacks believers of nearly every faith in every region, as I noted earlier. In Tibet, China continues its decades-long policies of aggressive interfering with Tibetan Buddhist practices and Tibetan culture. Domestic and overseas restrictions on both lay people and Tibetan Buddhist clergy hinder traditional religious pilgrimages. Chinese authorities have appointed Chinese Communist Party cadres to lead local monasteries while banning Tibetan children from participating in religious activities. The government has pushed thousands of monks and nuns out of their homes and bulldozed their monasteries. The Chinese government has also long interfered in the succession process for spiritual leaderships in Tibet. In 1995, and this one to me is just amazingly galling, 1995, they abducted the Panchen Lama when he was six years old, along with his parents. And the world still does not know if the Panchen Lama is dead or alive. He'd be celebrating his 30th birthday next month. Following the abduction, the Chinese government asserted its own choice as the Panchen Lama. That child grew up in Beijing, not in Tibet, the Chinese government only permits him brief, supervised visits to the Panchen Lama's traditional monastery in Tibet, and that's for photo ops. We call upon the Chinese government to release immediately the Tibetan-recognized Panchen Lama or share the truth about the fate, his fate with the world. We do not accept the Chinese government's often repeated and flimsy claims that he's studying and does not want to be disturbed. This is the Chinese government's record. The international community must make clear now that we stand unequivocally with the Tibetan people. We believe that members of the Tibetan communities, like members of all faith communities, should be able to select, educate, and venerate their religious leaders without government interference. And towards the Christians, the Chinese government has also increased its repressions of Christians. Last year, mainland China began enforcing amended regulations for religious affairs, 
Those re regulations give the government more power to control where people worship, with whom they worship, and what the content of their worship is. Since those regulations came into force, the crackdown on Christianity has increased dramatically. A few examples. In Zhejiang province, observers estimate in just two years, the Chinese government destroyed more than 2,000 crosses in Christian churches. In the same province today, there are reports of officials pressuring believers to renounce their faith. The media also indicate that over the last year, government authorities throughout China have forcibly closed hundreds of unregistered churches from both Protestant house churches and underground Catholic communities. In Beijing, authorities ordered the closing of the 1,500-member Zion Church last September. In Guangzhou, a few months later, authorities shut down the 40-year-old Wang Li Church. In Chengdu, Government authorities forcefully detained more than 200 members of the Early Rain Covenant Church. Seven months later, government officials permanently closed the church. At least a dozen members remained detained, and their whereabouts and health conditions remain unknown. Chinese authorities have charged Early Rain Pastor Wang Yi and his wife, Zhang Wang, with inciting subversion of state power. China is using baseless political charges to attack individuals for simply practicing their faith. I stand here today in support of Pastor Wang, his wife, and other members of their church and call on the Chinese authorities to release them immediately. Now, through all of our efforts, we're chasing a simple but important dream. It was one that I announced here when I first started in this position, that we would expand and push aggressively religious freedom for all people everywhere in the world at all times. That one day all people around the world, will be able to exercise their fundamental freedoms, including the right to freedom of religion, allowing individuals the liberty and dignity to do with their own soul what they wish. Religious freedom, at its core, is about the freedom of conscience, the freedom of individuals to hold the belief of their choice or to change faiths. It includes the freedom to worship alone or in community with others, to educate children and to share the faith. It is a right that is strongly linked with other fundamental freedoms like peaceful assembly and expression. But unfortunately, these liberties are under attack. As we gather here today, hearing the suffering of so many fellow human beings, their inherent dignity unrecognized and violated through religious persecution and by the very government trusted to defend the sacred right, we must all ask what can be done and what should we do? I think of the, often of the Soviet Jewry movement, a wide-scale grassroots movement that spread across America like prairie fire. Throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, as Jews were being held by the former Soviet Union, trapped behind the Iron Curtain and unable to flee or immigrate, Americans were organically organizing and advocating, bringing awareness to the plight of men and women halfway across the globe. Today, we too must bring awareness to the plight of Uyghurs, Tibetans, house church members, and Falun Gong, men and women halfway across the globe. You can be their voice as a community with shared belief in the fundamental right of religious freedom. Together, we, government, civil society, faith communities, can make an impact and push back against China's repressive campaigns and do so confidently. As the detained pastor of the early rain church, Wang Yi, said, in Xinjiang, in Shanghai, in Beijing, in Chengdu, the rulers have chosen an enemy that can never be imprisoned, the soul of man. 
China may be at war with faith, but it is a fight they will not win. Thank you for being here today. God bless you all. That was a terrific speech. We couldn't have hoped for, for more than that. Thank you very much. That concludes our program. Yeah, no, that was really good.